0: Welcome, welcome everybody. Back to the Hunt Gather Talk show. This is Hank Shaw, your host. We are sponsored by eFish and Filson. Today's show has been a long time coming. I get to interview Les Stroud. He is the survivor man. He is probably the OG survival dude, at least on TV. Um, some of you can remember Tom Brown, who predates Les Stroud, but there are not a lot of Serious, serious survival experts out there who know more or have a wider experience than Les Stroud. So, Les is a Canadian. He is the star of the TV show Survivor Man, which many of you have no doubt seen. And today we are going to actually talk about fishing in a survival situation. And if you watch any of the survival shows, you will see that fishing is one of those things that pretty much everybody gives a go at. I wanted to talk with an expert about what works and what doesn't, and we absolutely go over that. But this is a chance to interview less, so our conversation goes pretty far and wide, and we even get to dish on a little bit of the other survival shows that are out there. I think you're going to appreciate it. Without further ado, let's go. Les Stroud, I am super stoked to have you on the Hunt Gather Talk podcast. I've been watching your career for, I don't know, 20 years on television down here in the lower 48. And by the way, everyone out there, if you don't know that, Les is a Canadian. And it's just, I'm just slightly fanboying out because I have always viewed you as the OG, the real deal, the sort of best of the best of the people who know how to not die all by yourself in the wilderness. Welcome to the show. (laughs) Well, yeah, quite the intro. Well, thank you very
1: much. Thanks. It's good to be here, Hank.
0: So today, I mean, there's a million things we could talk about. But the thing that I've always been for sort of fascinated about because I've been fishing my entire life is how do you go about fishing when you don't have a rod and reel or, you know, modern nets or something like that? Because I've fished commercially with nets and I've fished commercially with long lines and I've fished recreationally with a hook and line basically my whole life. But one of the things that has always fascinated me is because one of my, I don't know if it's a guilty secret but it's like i love watching survival shows and yours was the first and you see people fishing over and over and over again and some things work and some things don't and i figured i need to go to the source to see what works and what doesn't
1: and here i am okay
0: yeah this has been burning a hole in my brain for years now fish baskets everybody seems to make fish baskets and they never work Mm -hmm.
1: well i think the way to approach this first of all Is you have to get past the cliche and that is the problem with fishing in a survival situation. It's equal to hunting in a survival situation. Let me touch on that first, just for some perspective here as well. Sure. Or some context. So hunting in a survival situation, when I look at, you know, when there's my show say online, so my YouTube channel has all of my shows available right now. So I'll go on. People will have watched, you know, an episode from how many years ago. And of course they comment. And I read all those comments and I go through them. Well, invariably, sooner or later, if there's a show that features some sort of survival fishing or doesn't and maybe could have, there's going to be a post criticizing me and pointing out, well, you should have just done this. The same thing with the hunting. Oh, you should have just done. I was like, you know what? In the wilderness, in a true survival situation, or even in just a adventurous, I'm just going to go out there situation, you don't, unquote, just do anything. It doesn't work like that. You have a million variables to take into account, realities of the topography and where you're at, the realities of the stream, if it's about fishing or the game and the forest, if it's about hunting. And I think sometimes people think, oh, you can just go out there with a spool of yarn and a bobby pin, or you can go out there with some parachute cord and a knife in your pocket and you can fashion a bow and arrow and take down a deer. It's ridiculous. That cliche just cracks me up every time. It's like, okay, here, let's see you do it. It doesn't work like that. First of all, if we're going to say the word primitive, and we're going to attach it to indigenous cultures, pre-cultures, prehistory culture, all of that stuff, you have to remember it. This is what they had to do to get to the next day. This was critical survival. Their skill sets were intense. So again, I'd like to bring it back a bit, Hank, to the skill set of it all. I probably will. I know you're not asking that, but I'll probably keep dovetailing from hunting into fishing and fishing into hunting because they go hand in hand again with people's perceptions of what they think they can do out there. And we'll get to what you can do. But you have to look at those people who are really good or were really good at doing this This was their entire life. And on top of that, here's the missed point. They were never alone. When I spent a year living in the bush with my ex-wife, that was one of the things that proved out is you can't just be two people romantically in the wilderness, taking down moose and caribou and catching large northern pike and walleye. It takes a community. So true primitive hunting and fishing requires a community because someone is really good at making the arrows and someone's really good at fletching the turkey feathers for the end of the, doing the fletching. Someone's really good at uh, flint napping the arrowhead. Someone's really good at making the bow. Someone's really good at making the sinew to back the bow. On and on it goes. Very few of us are good at all of that. Yes, we have artisans. Those artisans are rare. So bringing it back to the equipment- But even then,
0: if you're an artist, if you're one hell of a bow maker and you can do all of that, chances are you spent so much of your life being such a good boyer, that you're missing some other skills because you just didn't have time to learn them.
1: Exactly, you're a terrible hunter, right? Or, you know, someone's a snus, or you can't cook,
0: (laughs) or you can't cook,
1: exactly. Mm -hmm. The point is that, that these skills do require a collaborative community. And I'm not gonna take away from the romantic Jeremiah Johnson version of us all, living inside us all that we wanna go out and do this. I'm just saying at first, pull it back a bit and go, you know, these skills are intense. And they require community and they require a lifetime of skill set. So, again, going back to the original, you don't just go bow and arrow a deer, and you don't just go net 20 Arctic char. It doesn't work like that. So, anyway, I'm tangenting, but I did want to bring, I wanted to do that to sort of bring this into context.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's yeah, one of the things that I, we're going to get to fish baskets in a second, but the only kind of old school, Fishing that I was aware of growing up with were eel weirs in the rivers of the New York, New Jersey metro area, because that's where I grew up. Eel weirs are this thing that the Dutch, probably the native groups before the Dutch, but the Dutch really kept it through from the 16, 17, and 1800s. And for those of you listening out there, uh, an eel weir, really any kind of fish weir, only works with running water. So it has to be like a river. And you basically funnel fishy things, eels and, and fish through a very long slightly you know narrowing 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 set of you know walls and it ends in like a almost like a cod end of a fishing net kind of a pen and so in general fish doing their thing swimming down the river will oh I'll go left here and then left ends up putting you in that pen and so that's how they work and typically they only work for short periods of the year like eels only run once in a while but those are things that are very very localized and that's the other thing I think we should definitely add to this conversation is that X or Y skill really works awesome in Canada, but it, it's not going to work in Florida or something like that.
1: Well, and there are so many things like that. I mean, edible wild plants, common names. We call this trout lily here. And then you go to Peru and trout lily, some poisonous, toxic plant. So <laughs> you have to be really careful with the locality of the situation. And you're right. There are certain skills that do adapt in their generic form across the world. Yes, that's true. Weaving or something like that. But the way you do it definitely is, hinges upon the locality that you're at. And it may be useless where you are. So when we think of fish weirs, for example, generally speaking, my experience with fish weirs is that I've worked on many and I've been around historical ones and I've never seen them ever in a deep river. They're always in very shallow water that floods a certain time of the year that the fish run a certain time of the year. And of course they required many hands and a lot of muscle because often they're made out of rock that's been carried, you know, from not always 10 feet away, but sometimes a hundred feet away. And you're walking, you know, in the rushing water with the rocks, trying not to slip, trying to build this thing. And even though it might last a thousand years, it still has to be done in the first place. So you have to know where you are. For example, I love going in and catching suckers by hand on a sucker run. But I have specific creeks where I know they run. Now I have to make sure I hit that unless I'm checking it every day in the spring, I have to hit that Creek on the day they're running. Cause it might only be one day. It might be three might be a week, but it might only be eight hours. Yeah. Just, the, e-
0: the eels are the know. same way.
1: Exactly. And it's like that with the migration of animals, you know, or, you know, one of the easiest game animals to get in a survival situation is snowshoe hair, but are you where they are and are you where they are very active? And now you have to be able to read the signs of all of that. Is this where they travel? Are they eating here? Are they denning here or are they running through here? What are they doing here? Same thing with the fish, right? So if I do a little shopping list, I've fished with crazy made up lines with using a bubble gum as a bobber, various things as hooks bone hooks and uh, metal hooks and that I've fashioned out of what uh, pop tops I've poisoned fish in a couple of locations I've done fish weirs and you know what you started this by asking about you know what about the success of something first of all I want to say Hank you kind of premised the success based on watching some of these survival shows well not to go down that road too deep but let's remember that what they're doing they're doing for camera Mm -hmm. and some producer has dropped them on some side of some river saying, oh, and you can make fish traps for this, you know, and they'll make fi- It's like, they have no idea where they are or what fish are there. Or, you know, they're probably using a trap that's not even conducive to that locality, as you say.
0: Yeah, it's a fun one. I'm sure you've seen some of these shows. I mean, if you're like me, you don't watch them all because it's a little too close to what I do. And, like, I don't watch all the. I'll interject
1: shows. and just say, Hank, I can't. The only time I've ever watched them has been in a hotel room and it's like, okay, I guess I should watch this and I'll put it on. And within three minutes, I'm like, and I'm turning it <laughs> off because I just, you know, it drives me nuts, but that's another, that's a different it, podcast.
0: It's a lot how I yell at the TV when I watch top chef. I, yeah, exactly. Quick shout out to one of our sponsors, Filson. Filson sporting goods has for 125 years, their uncompromising commitment to quality has defined their authenticity. They have built trust within the community to become more than just a clothing brand. They are stewards of the American outdoor tradition. I have worn their gear for more than 25 years. I've worn it fishing, hunting, and even in just regular foul weather. I am almost always wearing a Filson lightweight rain jacket when uh, I'm fishing in rainy weather because it is at the same time light and waterproof. I love it to death and you should check it out too. Now back to the show. Obviously you've been doing this a long time just from a strictly low tech fishing point of view. What was the first, do you remember some of the things like, wow, that works. I need to learn that skill.
1: Yeah. You know, the best success I had, I suppose was actually with poison fishing and with that, that was while I was filming the series beyond survival. And I was out with the Veda in Sri Lanka and the Wichita in Peru And in both in the Wachapade, it was a combination of building a fish weir, letting the fish go into a section, and then poisoning the fish. And it didn't work there. With the Veda in uh, Sri Lanka, it was a case of finding literally like one, not stagnant, but calm, pond, puddle, a very small one, like 20 feet across by 15 feet across kind of thing. I could get in it up to my chest sort of things about that deep. And they knew fish and it had a small feeder Creek. And so they knew there were fish in there, but there the fish were trapped. But even in using the primitive technology of fish poisoning, that was seven different plants and trees combined together in a specific formula that we then put in the water that I guess, I'm not sure scientifically what's going on. If it poisoned the fish or if it drew all the oxygen out of the water, I'm not sure, but the fish, just started floating to the top and they floating to the top struggling as like, Oh, you walk over and grab them. That was actually surprisingly and astonishingly successful. Hmm. Uh, and it was a joy to watch actually. And I was right in the water with the poison. So you're in there going, okay, is it <laughs> <laughs>
0: doing this? <laughs> Don't drink the water. No. So I live in Northern California and there is a plant that is everywhere here. It's called soapweed or soap plant. And it's this big old hairy looking bulb. That sets a rosette. And then right now it sets up an asparagus looking stock that kind of sort of flowers, but it's everywhere here in Northern California. And the local Maidu and the Miwok, the two native groups that are from here, they would dig those big old hairy bulbs up and smash the hell out of them. And it's the exact same thing. They needed that same kind of a pond where, you know, I don't know how many they would throw in there, but it's all the saponins. The saponins in it would stun the fish and they would float to the top and they'd grab them. And then in early fall, because those bulbs are around all the time, but now is where you know where to find them and you can dig them up right now. This is the springtime. In the fall, Buckeye, California Buckeyes. And then the native groups in the Eastern East Coast used uh, East Coast Buckeyes. They have prussic acid in them. And so they would smash those guys and then just chuck them in the same kind of a pond and that would uh, bring fish up to the surface.
1: Yeah. I mean, obviously all primitive skills fascinate me, but if there's one that just astonishes me, it's always been poison fishing and the use of plants to poison fish, to catch them, render them edible still, even whatever poison you might be using. And you just got to sit back and go, how did they ever think of that? That's like the trial and error that would have been involved. If you want to start going down a metaphysical road of wondering how humans learn certain things, that's the road to go down because, wow, how did the Sri Lankan Veda determine that these seven trees and plants in this particular recipe would work on these fish in this it's baffling to me. Yeah, that's
0: the one that's amazing to me because the other examples i know of is all one thing
1: well and it's also just the same with um poison tipped poison tipped arrows for taking down game there's lots of variations and sometimes it is just one thing when i was in sibirut with the mantowai they used just one pepper and this pepper you know, will kill you. It's so hot. It's the hottest pepper in the planet, apparently. Where is it? But other places, they do a combination of, I forget where it was with the Sam Bushman. They have 11 different plants they put into their mixture to tip their, to put on their arrow tips.
0: Crazy. And how they ever figured that out, I haven't got a clue. Potion Masters from Hogwarts.
1: Exactly. Yes. Yes. <laughs> exactly. It's fascinating, you know? And so we're never going to figure that out in a survival or adventure situation. Like, oh, let me throw some rose tips in the water and see what happens. Like, we're never going to figure that out. So that you have to know by research and study sort of thing. And thankfully there's this information that exists with primitive technologies. But for us out there, I think honestly, all hunting and all fishing in a survival situation. And I will interject myself and say that I think that the most effective food you could get in a survival situation is fishing because I think getting a deer is a pipe dream you know getting wild plants depends on the season of everything and of course sort of fish but if you can get fish using primitive skill sets or you know things that you create or purely survival I'm just got makeshift stuff then uh, that's a windfall in my mind in a survival situation
0: I think my extensive watching of these shows will confirm that from a, just from a viewer standpoint, it's like all the guys, it's not, sometimes the hunters will get something, but if you're good at catching fish, you'll be okay.
1: Yeah. And that's why when people ask, where would you want to survive? If you had to survive, I always say the same answer, tropical Island with fresh running water, put me on a tropical Island with fresh running water somewhere. I'm good. I'll retire there. You know, because you have that ocean to fish from If you have a freshwater stream running, if it's a big area, that's even, you know, bonus, but that's the place. If you want to leave me somewhere, leave me in the Cook Islands or Costa Rica or, you know, somewhere in Fiji area. And uh, that's the place to do it because you can now let's get into that. So you, I know this is a bit of, I was going to say,
0: this is a good segue because I wanted to talk about the intertidal zone.
1: Yeah. And also spearfishing, right? So I think going back again to my disdain for the cliche is people think they can just spearfish, you know, spearfishing or bow and arrow fishing is incredibly difficult. You know, just the refraction of the water and understanding how to get your spear or your arrow shot into the water to hit that fish that you see that's hovering there, you know, takes a lot of skill and a lot of practice. And you're just gonna do a lot of splashing if you've never done it before. What but, would
0: your first tip be for somebody who's trying to stick a fish from outside the water, inside the water? This is, I mean, just saying that as opposed to like being in scuba gear, spearfishing with a Hawaiian sling or something
1: like that. Yeah. Well, it's a little bit of a, you know, very simple tip is practice, practice, practice. Don't take your favorite tips and ruin them, but go after stones and rocks until you get to a point where you understand the bend of the reflection in the water, or you understand where you need to be, how you need to stand sort of thing to do all of this. So practice, practice, practice. That's it. It's the only way. And every place is going to be different, isn't it? You know, are you standing in the shade or the dappled sunlight or the direct sun? Is the sun behind you, in front of you, beside you? Is it a spear? Is it a bow and arrow? You know what I'm saying? Like, so there's a lot of, there's a lot to take into account there. My son in Survivor Man and Son got a flatfish when we were in the Tofino area in British Columbia. And uh, (laughs) with the worst spear possible, I mean, the thing was bent you know, but this thing was just sort of hovering there and in a very small little spot in very shallow waters, like you almost could have just stepped on it. And so it worked perfect, you know.
0: You ever gig flounder in the Gulf?
1: Uh, I have, yes.
0: Yeah, that's something that we gig and frogs and gig and flounder are two things that are pretty common here in the US.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep. And so then you go to like what kind of spear, you know, is it a two tip or one tip spear? You know, I think a great way to practice this though, if you can find yourself a Sucker Creek, because, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> environmentally, sadly, nobody cares about suckers too bad. I love the taste of suckers. I think they're delicious, but when suckers run, they run by the tens of thousands. There's just so many of them. The creeks tend to be shallow. They tend to be six feet wide, you know, and if you can find a sucker Creek, what a great place to go and practice. You could practice with spear. You can practice by hand. I love going and catching them by hand. It's just kind of fun standing right in the <laughs> middle of it, letting them bounce off your shins. And then every once in a while you, you go for it sort of thing, not to get stuck.
0: What's that? Are they super spiny?
1: Well, you got to be careful. <laughs> That's not where you grab them. Don't grab them in the spines. You're going to have a very sore hand for a long time.
0: They're not like cats, are they? Where they've got the three spines that lock and then sometimes have venom in them?
1: Suckers, no, I don't. No, they don't actually. Now that I think of it. Sorry, you're right. I was just conflating catfish and suckers. So no, with suckers, you don't have to worry about that. And I, it's great. They're so easy. Like I said, it's fun. It's a fun way to get involved, to get your feet wet. You go out on a hot spring day. If it's Canada, get ready for the bugs because they're usually there right around the time the black flies are. (laughs) Yeah.
0: No fun. Another piece of sort of old school fishing that I'm familiar with, and I want to start this with all the stuff that I've had some vague experience or familiarity with is, is my mom. Uh, My mom's from Gloucester, Massachusetts. And when she was a kid in the forties, she would hand line codfish, just using a hand line. You know, it's just a, you know. Mm -hmm mono around a hand spool with a hook and a piece of dead clam on the bottom of it and then just haul them up
1: i love that method one of my favorite methods is to hand line or maybe to use a bottle plastic bottle i mean i've shown that in uh, i think grenada in grenada i caught a beautiful fish using i found Line just laying around because, you know, there's always trash and often it's fishing line. And I spooled it all up. There was lots of it. I found a plastic bottle with a lid. There wasn't any holes in it. Great. Now I got that. Spooled the line around the bottle, threw it out, caught a fish. I love it because it removes the rod and reel. And it's just you and the line and the fish. And you can feel all of that tugging of the fish. Th- you can play it so much more sensitively. And if you've got a great fish, but it's not well hooked, that's a wonderful way to play the fish, I think. And it's oh, yeah. sort of primitive.
0: I've actually done that with snubbers uh, when, when we're hand trolling for salmon in Alaska. So when you troll commercially with no hydraulic gear, you know, you've know you got your iron ball or your steel ball or lead ball on the bottom. And then it's you've got the hooks you know, and lines running off at, at, at intervals when you haul it up and you've got a fish on. You take that fish off the main line and it's you and the snubber, which is a kind of a rubber bandy thing. And you have to haul it in by hand, hand over hand. And I don't know if you've ever done that on a moving boat with an 18-pound silver salmon, but it's fairly challenging. <laughs> Not with an 18-pounder, <laughs> no. Uh, uh, so walk me through, how would you make that bottle fishing apparatus? That sounds fascinating to me.
1: Uh, yeah, it's the um, Grenada Island episode okay. uh, is where I do it. And it's just, I mean, basically exactly the way your mom did it, except... The bottle is your hand instead of your, you know, so you're wrapping the line literally around the body of the bottle. Simple okay. That.
0: And how do you anchor it to the bottle? It? You just put a hole in the bottle and anchor the line on it?
1: No, no hole. You know, so I got the bottle in my left hand and I got yeah. one end of the fish line and my thumb's holding it. And I just start with my right hand. I'm winding the line around the, hopefully you got lots of line around the bottle. Now, when I throw it, you know, it never goes out all the way or I can hold that with my thumb, but you throw it and it's great because it spools off of that plastic bottle so easily.
0: Ah, cool. And And it's unfortunate
1: that it's plastic, but you could use anything of that shape. But you you
0: throw kind of top end forward.
1: Exactly, yeah. Yeah. It's a fun way to do it. All of this said, again, and you sort of started this up talking about the success of this as well. And I do have a bit of a story for that show alone, actually. But the most success I ever had in a survival situation catching fish was for... Massive Arctic char in the Arctic. But how did I catch those? With a full technical, modern fishing line and lures? Because the scenario I had set up was, what if you were fishing up here? you were dropped off, and your plane never came in, It never picked you up. Now you're in a survival situation. that's you know often with Survivor man, I would set these scenarios up like that so I could have a story to kind of share and tell and work around. And that's what I did there. But yet, that took five days. I had five days without catching a single, without a single bite with high-tech gear in the Arctic, the pristine Arctic, five days, nothing. And then on the fifth day, kaboom, four big Arctic char, because that's when they happen to be coming through. And I want to add an addendum story to that. When I went up there and I was working with my local fixer before I went up, he said, oh, Les, when you get up here, you'll be able to walk across the river on the backs of the char. Oh, great. This is going to be so great. Oh, you know, I thought I kind of had a bit of almost like a cheat. I had a scenario set up where like, well, this is going to be cool. And then I get up there and there's no fish. And he's like, oh, yeah, that was like last week. eh?" (laughs) Well, that's just great. Now I'm up here and I'm setting up this whole scenario, wanting to show how you can, you know, you could get by all the other things I would show the shelter, how to, you know, watch out for polar bears, stuff like that. There's no fish. So I went five days with nothing, you know, and no food at all. And then I had the windfall. So again, that speaks to the efficacy. And I know you want to get to this about what people should have in these situations. I mean, boy, see, it's hard if I'm in the desert and I'm surviving in Utah and I'm nowhere near a river. What's the point of me having any fishing gear? There isn't. But if I'm in Canada, in Ontario, there's a great point in having fishing gear in your survival kit.
0: Oh, really? Any place other than a desert?
1: Yeah. I mean, well, any place that there's fishing. You know, you can also have lots of water, but no fish, you know, and they say, well, there's always fish. No, there's not. You know, this is what well, is that's why they call it fishing and not catching the old joke. Right. So I'm lucky that I fish here on the rogue river for steelhead every year, but it's a wonderful river for fishing for, but lots of people go there and get skunked too. So now mm-hmm. if you get skunked in your day out fishing, you go home just sheepish. but if you get skunked in a survival situation,
0: your life's on the line. Hey everybody, I wanted you to know that this podcast Hunt Gather Talk the season 3 is a companion to my latest cookbook which is Hook Line and Supper. Hook Line and Supper is probably the only efficiency food cookbook you're ever going to need. It is a comprehensively written, lushly illustrated book that covers both freshwater and salt and it is kind of the crowning achievement of what I've done in terms of all of my cookbooks over the years because I have been fishing For decades and decades and decades, and I have fished all over the country, and I have eaten basically anything that lives in the water, and you are going to find that expertise in hook, line, and supper. I wanted to give you guys, as listeners of my podcast, a special offer. If you go to my website, which is hunter, angler, gardener, cook, you can get to it at huntgathercook.com, and you go to the buy the book section, and you buy a copy of not just hook, line, and supper, but any of the books on that website you will get 20% off your checkout by using the coupon code HUNTGATHERTALK. So once again, if you are interested in buying the cookbook that underlies this podcast, go to my website, which is Hunter Angler Gardner Cook, that is huntgathercook.com, and go to the buy the book section and use the coupon code Talk, And that will give you 20% off your order. One more thing, if you buy three books or more, I will upgrade your shipping to UPS from media mail, which will get it to you much, much faster. Again, the coupon code is Talk on my website, Hunter Angler Cook. Uh, it's HuntGatherCook.com. And thank you for listening. So to that end, one of the things that I have always, I've always, I've seen it a little bit on the shows and I've always thought about it because I used to do this back in Virginia. This is the Rappahannock River I'm talking about. This is the one of the eels. It's legal in Virginia to set trot lines. So you have to check them once a day. So what I used to do is I used to run a trot line in the Rappahannock. I would set it when I would go home from work. And then I would check it in the morning when I go to work. And then I had a cooler in the car to take anything I would catch. And pretty much, pretty much every day, every other day, I would have something nice. What do you think about setting jug lines and trot lines and things like that?
1: It's an interesting point because up in Canada, I believe in Ontario, where I'm, you know, I live in two places, both in the States and in Canada. And uh, But up in Canada, I believe they made it illegal. But when I grew up, we used to leave lines set out uh, from the shore for the specific purpose of catching catfish because they're bottom feeders. So your baits, uh, you know, your worm or whatever you've got is out. It's just sitting in the muck on the bottom and catfish are feeding at night. You wake up in the morning, you go out, you got a catfish on your line. You got breakfast, you got catfish and eggs, you know, or something like
0: that. Channel cats Um, are what I mostly caught in Virginia.
1: Channel cats. Oh, I love channel cats. So in a survival situation, absolutely. But then that's what we're talking about, right? Like the thing is there's active fishing and passive fishing, right? And in a survival situation, anything you can do that is passive is wonderful because you're not expending calories. Mm -hmm. And if you can set out a whole bunch of snares and deadfalls and fishing lines, That is a wonderful skill set to know because then you go back to improving your shelter, gathering wild edibles, building your signal fire, looking for a way out, tending to your wounds. And then you come back and there's a trout on your line, you know? So leaving lines set like that is really, yeah, that's a big part of survival. I've done it in many situations, not been that successful. Even though we used to catch catfish like that and you'd say you had a lot of luck with your trout. But then again, there's also times you could probably remember not having luck. Or you realize, oh, four days has gone by, and you checked your lines, and there's been nothing. But if it's survival, that's four days without food.
0: Yeah, when and I, you know
1: something off- else you talked about. You brought up the catfish and the spines. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of the story of fish. Now noodling, oh. right? And putting your, hand, I mean that technique is the scariest of all. No, um, because man, I've I've shoved my hands in muddy holes in the Amazon jungle riverbanks, and I tell you, those were one of those moments where I just said to myself, what am i doing this this is so stupid it's like i don't want to catch anything i'm just gonna do this and hope i don't touch anything because you know meanwhile the elder ladies of the tribe were showing they were like right in there up to their neck shoving their arm deep in muddy holes hoping it's not a stinging catfish i'm like oh my gosh
0: or you know a snapping turtle that takes your finger off
1: exact well a lot of noodlers are missing a finger
0: right (laughs)
1: that's the comes with the territory. It's like yeah i can do without that particular skill set i think
0: that's a hard no on my part yeah there's just no noodling for me
1: no but the one you already mentioned i think is the best of all and that is leaving lines overnight like i said it's illegal now up in ontario but i miss it because it was a great way you know what i have never enjoyed just sitting there and fishing if i'm gonna have my hands on the line i want activity you know, that's why I like fishing for a uh, steelhead at the rogue river. We drift down through rapids and it's a technique where you're bouncing the bait off the bottom and you get to learn the feel between the rocks it's hitting and an actual bite. That's fun. But just sitting there for six hours, I mean, that bores me. So I'd rather like, well, can I just prop up three lines and go away? I'll go back home and have a cup of tea, come back. Ice fishing, same thing. I don't sit there staring at the uh, jumper. Tip up. The tip up. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, I love setting those my place, my little cabin up in Canada, I can watch from inside the cabin out at the bay at my tip-up. And it's like, oh, hey, one's up? Okay. I'm going.
0: It's totally true. So my friend, Chris Niskanen, he lives near Little Lake in Minnesota and he can do the same thing. We did it together for Northern Pike, I don't know, God, 20 years ago, but uh, I wonder if he still does it because that, that's the way to do it. You know, Well, our, our
1: our mutual friend, Kevin Coswan, who works with me on the series. And I'm just going to plug that now, the series wild harvest that's on PBS in the United States. And Kevin has his own series as well called from the wild. I mean, he's big into the ice fishing. And I think ice fishing has a, there's a number of things when it comes to adventure in the wilderness that get a bad rap and they get a bad rap by ignorant people who have no idea, you know, it's true. Ice fishing with your uncle when you're 13, who's in a little shack who's drinking and farting and you're sitting there staring at a line, hoping that you're going to get a whitefish or a Northern Pike. Yeah. Nah. Yeah. Okay. I'm out. But ice fishing, you know, where I set two or three lines, whatever the legal limit is. And I go up into my cabin and I've got a fire crackling and I can look out. Oh, hey, oh, tip ups down. And I run out and pull in. a North- That's pretty cool. And it's delicious too.
0: Oh, there's no way in hell I'm doing the other type of ice fishing, which is like, Oh yeah, we're going to go there and dig a hole in the ice and sit on a bucket. Like, oh, yeah, no way, dude. <laughs> uh, that's why they invented ice fishing shacks,
1: because everybody got kind of tired of that. Exactly. Now, in a survival, I tried to do that in a survival situation. I It was extenuating circumstances because I also was mimicking an injury, which was ridiculous. But I was showing that if you had an injured left arm, you're not, you know, people say, why didn't you just chop a hole in the ice and ice fish? Well, because I was mimicking an injured left arm. You ever tried chopping a hole with one arm? Right. You know, in two and a half feet of ice. Or working in auger, even if you had an auger. Exactly. So, and that's the difficult process. I have rarely put a hole through the ice for ice fishing and not gotten soaking wet in the process. Right. But I can go back to the cabin, change, dry off, come out, set my lines, you know, in survival, it's different. You can't afford to get soaking wet.
0: One of the things that I've seen on, and I've only seen this on one show and that's the TV show alone is these men and women are making their own nets and, That process is absolutely mind-boggling to me because I've worked on a gill netter in Alaska for salmon, and I've helped mend nets. And that's hard enough. I can't even imagine. It's like, I'm going to build a net today. Like, what?
1: (laughs) Well, I don't want to go too far down this road because that's not what this podcast is about. But there is a production element that's being led by non-survival instructor type producers from Los Angeles who are just making the show the way they want it to B. Yes, now I will never deny the folks in alone. A lot of they're good people, some of them are good survival people and they know their stuff and they're out there actually doing it. But the story is being horrendously manipulated by the producers who own the series and making it whatever story they want. So, segue to a great story here because a longer version of this, when I was with Kev, our friend Kevin Cosman, actually up at a Bushcraft Symposium, I met a bunch of them. We were chatting case in point when this gentleman, I think his name was Greg made a fishnet and they might've alluded to it and shown it a bit, but he caught five fish. They never showed that in the show because they didn't want to make it look too easy. So that's what you get with a lot of these shows is nonsense. They want it to look horrible and horrendous and rough and people are suffering. Meanwhile, this guy actually had success. And yes, making your own net and then actually catching five fish is brilliant. I put in an actual fishnet that I found on the shoreline, set it up in an actual ocean shoreline area where the tide was coming in. I could when it was out, I could go lay it out there, and then I could come back and when it went, the tide was in, it was in thirty feet of water. it was amazing, it was a big tide. and the salmon were running and didn't catch a single fish. you know, so that guy that was amazing, but again, that speaks to the nonsense of those shows because they're not with Survivor man, it was like, this is what happened, and I'm going to show you what happened. In those shows, they still, they rejig everything to show just the suffering sort of thing uh, with their edit. Meanwhile, this guy, Greg, I am talking, he's like, yeah, man. He goes, I caught five fish and they didn't even show it. I'm like, man, that sucks. That would have been what I would have shown. I would have said, look at how successful this guy was.
0: Isn't this amazing, you know? that It is interesting because um, they have shown many other people catch fish in those nets that they've mm-hmm. made. So. I don't know why they did it with that, but I well, guess, the I guess question, they wanted
1: him to look like he was suffering all the time. I guess. Sort of the question
0: point. I guess I have is okay, so if this is a thing, like if you're going to be, how useful would it be to learn how to make a net if you are going to be backcountry, spending a lot of time in the backcountry? Well, there's two versions
1: of that whether or not you have modern material or you're going totally primitive. So, again, totally primitive, and we slip back into, okay, that's something that takes potentially months right? Some of these skills require not hours or days, but months of time to craft. And that's something that is missed a lot. Like, well, you could have made a fishing net. Yeah. If I had three months, you know, because in terms of the primitive side of it, you have to know the material, the twisting methods, all, but you have to be able to get all of the, oh i don't know maybe milkweed fibers or cedar fibers you have to be able to get all of that you have to be able to get all of that in the season that you gather that right. part of that plant you don't just go out and get milkweed fibers whenever willy-nilly you don't even go out and get birch bark to make a birch bark canoe willy-nilly you don't know, you have to be at the right season okay now you gather it all so these making in fishnet might take a year in reality in the primitive sense so to answer your question though Is it a worthwhile skill then? Yes, it is. If you can make it in the short form, if you've got material that's around that is accessible, if you luck out and you're there and there's a big patch of cattail or a big patch of milkweed that's perfect in season, great. Now you need to know the twisting method. But all of that's going to take a very long time. On the other hand, if you have a whole load of or something, you know, that's great. And one of the things that I think I showed in an episode was okay, I've got this big, thick rope. It's useless as it is. But if I take it apart, Mm. I have yards and yards and yards of thin rope because the big ropes are always smaller ropes intertwined. And so the short form answer to your question is, yes, it's a useful skill for sure. And as you've seen, for example, on a loan, it can pay off. All of this has to come into play, which is why a lot of times, even in Survivor... I won't... Never mind talking about the other shows. Even in Survivor Man. I would try to advantage myself by having me in a place where I could show some success. So in the Arctic, I was a lost fisherman. I had gear and there's the ocean. I should have success. But even then, it still took five days. Or I'm in the Amazon jungle and I know how to get these freshwater shrimp from this creek. Okay. And I did. So you're trying to play into a scenario that, quite frankly, works well on film.
0: Yeah. Let's go back to the intertidal zone because you'd mentioned your desert island kind of feel And because that's – desert island is, of course, surrounded by an intertidal zone. Bronco, I'm – I'm a tropical island. Well, yeah. I'm quite good at that sort of gathering and foraging and that sort of thing. But then again, I've been doing this for my entire life, and I've really been only doing it in U.S. and Canada and Mexico. So I'm very comfortable with this part of the universe. You've been everywhere, though. So one of the interesting things that I've always wanted to know is like, okay, if you Stuck me in, let's just say, your tropical island with the fresh water in the Cook Islands, like you mentioned. How much would my knowledge of stuff that is good to eat in the intertidal zone here translate to some random spot? Hmm.
1: About five or ten
0: percent.
1: I'm being very vague here. Obviously, that's a random percentage to throw out. But from my experience, now why is that? Why is that? Well, because five percent or ten percent of the time, you may recognize. Okay, it's a lobster. Well, you know, and a lobster is a lobster is a lobster. Or it's a crab. And a crab is a crab is a crab. Okay, so there's your five or 10, 15, 20% of the time. But if you've never understood what a stonefish is in the Cook Islands, you may just simply kill yourself by trying to get that fish.
0: (laughs) You know how I know what a stonefish is? Do you remember the movie, The Blue Lagoon? Yes. (laughs) Where Brooke Shields steps on the stonefish?
1: Yes, and that's a real thing right or well okay okay great you know perfect question case in point i'm not someone i very rarely enjoy calamari in a restaurant right so i'm not I wasn't familiar with eating squid but i was also not even familiar with catching squid just wasn't familiar now i always enjoyed being survivor man in a scenario where i didn't know something because it showed you look if you don't know this stuff what do you really do and there are ways to figure out if a plant is poison well I caught this, there was a squid that rolled up dead, but it wasn't rotted in any way. It was edible. And in that show, I said, well, I know I can eat this part, but I don't even know if I can eat the rest of this part. And turns out I could have, but I didn't. I think I used it for bait instead, but I didn't because of my ignorance, because I didn't know you can eat the whole part of this particular creature. So yeah, you can have all this West Coast knowledge or even East Coast but we throw you down in the Cook Islands. You don't know about stonefish. So what did I do to combat that? Well, that's why in, with Survivor Man was always about teaching. So I would go down a week ahead of time and train and learn. If I'm going to your neck of the woods, I'm calling Hank Shaw and saying, Hank, can we go out and spend a couple of days? But Let's take a day and just go to wild edibles. Let's take a day and just work on the tidal zones in California. And I would go and learn that stuff. So that I could regurgitate that later, if you will, on a Survivor Man episode. That was the point of why I was there. Mm-hmm. But there were also times when I just didn't know. And so, yeah, again, I touched on that earlier. Your generic survival skills do transfer around the globe in certain ways, but only, you know, 10, 20% of the time, 80% of the time, if you haven't taken the time to learn what's there in plants, in flora and fauna, you can't guess. You can't guess. It's very
0: dangerous to guess. One real funny note that I just have to put out there is that I can't tell you how many survival shows I have seen where there's nopales everywhere and they're starving. Yeah. <laughs> like, beating yeah. nopales. You're surrounded by, like, th- stuff that I pay for in my Latin markets.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I've, I've, and you see that. And that's why if you know, you know, uh, for example, I didn't realize that Gooseneck Barnacles I didn't learn about them. Oh, they're until, so good. Exactly. But and, I didn't know that. I mean, they don't look edible. They look horrible. But turns out they're delicious. And we featured on an episode, uh, upcoming episode of season two of Wild Harvest.
0: I'm bummed. And, you can't uh, pick them in California. It's illegal in oh, California, but you can get them in Oregon and Washington.
1: And you can get them up in uh, where we shot the show, which was up in uh, Vancouver, oh, British okay. Columbia. You know, chitons and mussels oh, and on and on. Goes, right. So learning those. But that touches on the main thing. The first and foremost, always for me, and I've said this for 20 years now, you cannot watch a survival program, including Survivor Man or Wild Harvest, the new series, and go out and do that. You can't. You need to call Hank Shaw and go out with him and spend a day training. You need to call Les Stroud. You need to call David Holliday. You need to find these programs, these places where you can learn and learn from an expert. You cannot do it by reading a book. You can't do it by going online and you can't do it by watching TV. It's
0: true. The human. this is what I tell people with mushrooms a lot is uh, I can show you like a good example right now in the Sierra Nevada, there's a mushroom called Amanita vernicocra. It's one of my favorite mushrooms to
1: eat. Yeah. I know where there's two right now out in my
0: yard. Yeah. I mean, just absolute bajillions of them in the spring and they're delicious. They're vaguely related to the Caesars Amanita in Mexico and Italy, but you really have to know your stuff when you are going after anything that's an Amanita, because some Amanitas can literally kill you. Well, and yeah, I mean, recognizing
1: pine mushrooms, right? Matsutakis, oh, there's yeah. similarity in appearance. You better. So I go out with a fellow here named Adam LaRue, and he runs a program every spring called Sharpening Stone. I highly encourage your listeners to look up Adam LaRue and Sharpening Stone. And, you know, he's my guy for this area. And you'd think, well, you're Survivor Man, don't you know? No, I don't. You know, it's so, like, okay, those are shaggy manes. I get, it. I recognize those. Okay, good, I'm good. Oh, those are some morales. I know those ones. But otherwise, I will go out. Like I say, if I'm down in your area, I'm calling you. Mm-hmm. And I'm that guy. I've right. been learning this stuff around the world for 35 years. But I still, you know, I didn't really know about gooseneck barnacles until about 18 months ago. And why is that? It's very similar to sporting activities. If you go to the mountains, everybody, there skis. If you go to Ontario where I'm from, you know, I can drop you in a canoe and throw you down a set of rapids. You're going to drown and die. Me, I'm going to dance down that set of rapids because that's what I grew up knowing how to do. And so when it comes to wild edible plants, flora and fauna, you've got to go with the people who are from that area and who are into that skill set and learn from them. And it's wonderful. I'm still planning on doing some mushroom hikes out here in Oregon because Oregon's new to me. I know a lot now, but Oregon is not where I've been raised in training. And so I'm constantly learning.
0: Intertidal travels. Here's the other thing that I wanted to touch on with that particular set of, okay, if you're there. Well, I mean, I don't know if you've ever heard of this place, but it's, there's a place called murder Cove in Alaska mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it's called that way because a bunch of Russian fur trappers or traders or whatever Decided to haul in there, drop anchor, they're all super hungry and they all went clamming and every single one of them died of probably paralytic shellfish poisoning or Vibrio or something like that. And so my big question is, if I am in X spot, like just some rando spot and, oh my God, there's clams everywhere. I don't want a repeat of Murder Cove. I mean, how real is that in your travels? I mean, it's when you've done this kind of a show or just trying to learn skills or whatever like that to me it's enough of a stopper in my head that like i don't know if i want to dig the clams on that tropical island and the cook islands that we've been talking about
1: Mm -hmm. and nowadays it's a very real problem i'm fairly skittish about it and i will always just like hey are we into red tide here or you know what's you know i said no this season totally safe anything you want you know then i'm down in costa rica and i'm talking to an elder there who's teaching me and he's showing me the snails the sea snails and he's holding he goes if you pour it out and the liquid is clear you can eat it if you hold it up and pour it out and the liquid is greenish it's poisonous and but it's so subtle mm-hmm. it's still scary to do it there's a oh i don't want to get this wrong but in any event the snows in the sierra nevadas have a pinkish hue to them and when that pinkish hue is on the snow on a mountain you don't want to gather that snow to melt and use it as water because you can be poisoned or, you know, get some issues with that pinkish hue. I can't remember. Forgive me. I've forgotten now what it is. And it's got some kind of bacteria. Yeah. It's a bacteria of some sort that's on the, and it gives the snow, this little beautiful pinkish hue. That's a problem. These are all very real scenarios to
0: understand. Cue Frank Zappa joke. Yes, that. exactly. Yeah, yeah, you get that on for, all the time. For, young people, yeah, yeah, uh, of for course. young people out there, don't you eat that yellow don't snow. Don't you eat that yellow snow.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and funnily enough, you know, just like tangent subject matter. And I, it used to be a bit of a battle. I stand behind my belief that you can always eat snow because you need to stay hydrated. Now, oh, but it abrades your mouth. It'll cool you down. And you know what? At 1 p.m. when I'm building my shelter, building an igloo, and I'm dehydrated. You know, I'm going to eat lots of snow. I'm going to keep getting that liquid in me. And at 4.30, when the sun's getting weak and I'm starting to cool down, I might back up, be careful now because I don't want to chill myself. But in the middle of the day, you got to stay hydrated. I'm, you know, you know I'm very big on hydration. So just don't, yeah, don't eat the yellow snow.
0: <laughs> I might have to put the Frank Zappa song in the show notes for this one, just for old there you time's go. sake. Hunt Gather Talk is brought to you in part by eFish. Are you ready for summer? eFish delivers only in-season, never-frozen, wild, American-caught seafood right to your doorstep. How do they do that? eFish doesn't have a warehouse full of fish. Instead, their Harvester Direct Seafood ships your order directly to you from the source. This means that in most cases, your order is still swimming when you place your order. The fish goes straight from the dock to you overnight. It doesn't get much fresher than that unless you catch it yourself. But most importantly, with eFish, you can always be sure that they have put harvesters and our oceans first. What does that mean? Small boat operations, hook and line caught fish, and their products are never treated with chemicals. Truly handled with care from the minute it's hooked until it arrives at your doorstep. At eFish, they want you to see food confidently. So if you want access to Harvester Direct, in-season seafood that is always fresh and never frozen, check out efish.com. That is e-fish.com. Get $15 off your first order with my special coupon code, HuntGatherTalk. That coupon code is HuntGatherTalk. Once again, that's e-fish.com. The one super memorable, I mean, there's lots of memorable Moments from your show, but one of the ones that I use when I talk to other people like who have never seen your show, I'm like, well, this guy's for real. First of all, he he is really alone. Second of all, like he's not sugarcoating stuff. And you were way up like in the Arctic somewhere and you were eating some like seal liver, I think it was. And like you look dead in the camera, like, yeah, this is freaking vile, but I'm going to eat it anyway. And I forget what the circumstances were around that. Well, there's a couple,
1: and you might be conflating a couple of them when it comes to the Arctic. So in the very first time I was up there, when I went out, they said, well, here, take some, and it was whale blubber, and it was disgusting, and I was eating it in the middle of active polar bear territory. And that,
0: What could go wrong?
1: (laughs) Yeah, What? hey, what could go wrong with this? And so that was one of those scenarios. But the seal, uh, when I was filming Beyond Survival, again, plug, plug, it's all available on my YouTube channel anytime. It's there for free that series, and that show up in the Arctic, uh, and I was highlighting my work with the Inuit, we hunted and I dispatched a seal. We brought it in and we ate the seal liver while it was still warm. Now I'll correct you. That was not vile at all. That was absolutely delicious. And the thing is that brings us to that whole, well, what can you eat raw kind of question? And everybody's, oh, you're going to get, you know, tularemia, you're going to get trichinosis, you're going to get da, 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 da. and Yes, that's correct in certain situations. So you have to know, again, you have to know your situation, right? So I know that, for example, if I were to take down a moose or a caribou or, you know, a seal that I can eat that meat raw to survive right away. Well, no, you're going to get, no, when you get all of that poisoning, that's, you're talking about meat that's been on a shelf and in trucks and yeah, no, I'm not going to eat raw cow delivered to me in a steak, you know, whether it's Wagyu or not, but in the wild, you don't have that issue. Now, certain animals, you might, like raccoons and trichinosis. So you need to be careful. Apparently, I've always been taught that one of the safest animals to eat raw, just as you killed it, is a porcupine, that it doesn't carry a lot of these different diseases. So in that case of the seal, there was tradition to that. You know, you've heard of that before. A lot of hunters, it's they take a moose and the first thing they do is they eat the liver. And I remember it with the Cree, They would take a moose and it would be, maybe it was a pregnant moose. And so they would take the fetus and they would actually feed some of the fetus back into the mouth of the mother. And I know this sounds grotesque, but in fact, it was all sacred and ceremonial so that the spirit of the mother could live on kind of thing. But yeah, it's um, the eating of raw food. Now, for example, in Alaska, I found a fish and it's so funny because in Survivor Man, I never had to stage anything. So if you saw me find a fish or people hop on this all the time, I found a lighter on the shore of Grenada. I actually found the lighter. It's like, well, I'm just going to show this in the story because this is survival. And I found a lighter with fluid. Well, in Alaska, I watched a bald eagle fly away from the fish that it was eating. And there's this fish just sitting there. Okay, I'm going to eat it. And I could eat it raw. I ended up cooking it to make it nice because I didn't need to be sensationalistic about it. But you can eat a lot raw. In a survival situation, absolutely. And that seal liver, honestly, it was delicious.
0: Uh, it must have been the muktuck that you were
1: or you're thinking of the eyeball. Now I also say ate the seal eyeball, but that was also delicious, but that obviously, you know, in a sensationalistic kind of way, it looks absolutely disgusting. And a tandem story on that, I won't get into it too deep, but Discovery Channel in the United States did not allow me to show that scene of me eating the seal eyeball, but Canada did. So we did two different edits. The one in Canada, you get to see me seating, eating the seal level. The one in the States, you cannot. Now, a year goes by. They decide to copy my show. They launch He Who Shall Not Be Named's show. And in it-
0: Oh, the Voldemort show. That. That's right. <laughs> What's that? The Voldemort show.
1: The Voldemort show, yes. <laughs> that guy, that British character, uh, the dancing monkey, eats a goat's eyeball. And I remember calling the executive producer Discovery. And Charlie's like, yeah, I was waiting for this call. goes, Les, I'm so sorry. Because they would not let me show me eating a seal eyeball. 12 months later, they let Bear eat a goat's eyeball on camera. I'm like, really? Really, guys? And then Charlie was just like, I'm so sorry, Les.
0: Whatever. All right. Since you brought it up, there's this one fun, fantastic moment also. So he who shall not be named did a show in the desert. And all right, let me preface this by, okay, so I used to live in Fredericksburg, Virginia. And in Fredericksburg, which is right next to Marine Corps Base Quantico and Fort AP Hill. So every so often, military units from other countries would show up to do maneuvers. And one day, I'm hanging out at the bar that most of the US Marines hang out, and I'm just watching basketball. And a bunch of Royal Marines show up from England, and actually from Britain, because their sergeant was a Scotsman. And they start getting rowdy as Royal Marines would, and they get rowdier and rowdier. And it's just, they're it's starting to really annoy everybody there. So at one point, one Royal Marine stands up stock still and pesses right into his empty beer cup. And then the next Marine next to him goes, God save the Queen, and drinks it. At which point, all hell broke loose. There was a fight between the US Marines and the Royal Marines, and everybody got thrown out of the bar. And I ended up driving the Scotsman back, and it was just quite a story. But anyway, I start with that one because there's an episode of he Who shall not be named. He's in the desert. He's like, Oh man, I've got to drink my own piss. And everybody watching him is like, that seems gross. And apparently you either weren't watching it because sometime shortly later on your show, there was like, you were in the desert and there was like, yeah, I'm really super thirsty. And I could drink my own piss, but that's disgusting. So I'm going to show you how to do like this. Like it was like a evaporative thing where you'd like the moisture would come out of it. And then what would be left was pure water. and I'll never forget that moment. It was like, ah, I was like, it's super serve and return from these two rival shows. Well, and, you know,
1: <laughs> we won't go too dark down that rabbit hole. But the joke of that scenario was, first of all, the scene that I shot, I had shot without even knowing that he had done
0: I kind of thought that was the case, but but I was,
1: I was teaching you how to extract (laughs) pure water from urine, which is a technique and a survival technique, notwithstanding Aaron Ralston, who says that doing that when he got his arm stuck in the desert, in the Canyon that it saved his life. I understand that, but the survival consensus is first of all, that it's not rehydrating yourself to do that. You are taking in a lot of toxins. If it does any good to you at all, it's psychological, not physiological. The joke when it comes to the Voldemort of survival and when he drank that is first of all, if you're dehydrated, you don't pee like a racehorse. And he apparently filled his old Nalgene container. So it's like, oh, okay, first point. of all, if you're dehydrated, <laughs> that's not happening. When you're dehydrated, you're not even going. It's and if like you amber do, syrup. <laughs> you're, dribble, you're dribbling out this tawny colored, you know, toxic, almost, you know, you're on empty. Second of all. And this is the funny part is he's laughed at for being the guy who drinks his own pee. And he didn't even really do it because it was apple juice. But he can't confess that because it's shown as him really doing it. He's caught in this ridiculous scenario where it's like, yeah, you were duping your viewers and audience. I mean, we're not going to go down that hole too deep. You know, that's a two hour discussion. But in that moment, in that scene, he was duping his audience, pretending to be dehydrated. Well, I'm going to do this now, just like his enema thing. He's going to fake it, takes the apple juice, drinks it, pretends that it tastes, he goes, oh, it tastes salty. And it's like, well, urine doesn't taste salty. So anyway, he does all that. Now he's known as the guy who disgustingly drinks his own pee and he didn't even really do it. It's hilarious. (laughs) And then, you know, my point was, I didn't even know that was going on. That's a whole other story that I'm going to tell. And again, plugging my own stuff. I do director's commentaries now on my own YouTube channel about my own shows. And eventually I'll do these other shows, but I'll be doing that one coming up very soon. At that point, I didn't know that Discovery was going to be doing this or releasing this stuff of his or that had created that based on mine. I was just trying to show you that drinking your own pee is not good for you in a survival situation, but you can extract pure water out of it. And that's, you know, as always, just like you, Hank, it's always been about educating and teaching and sharing about the wilderness, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'll never forget. That was, that was, that was just great moments in sports.
1: (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And that's like I said, I, so I've been having fun on my YouTube channel, doing these directors commentaries of my own show and people love them. You know, we talk, Oh
0: God, like mystery, science fiction theater. Yeah. I just,
1: I give the behind the scenes. I say, here's what actually happened or here's what happened or here's why I had to do that. And I'm just coming to the era now where the networks decided to copy Survivor Man and create all these other shows. And, um, I'm going to have to address it. I have already addressed it anecdotally here and there along the way. And I get mixed reviews on that. Some people don't want to hear about it and other people like, yeah, I say this. My thing is I'm just giving you all of the behind the scenes, but it's fun. I love giving them behind the scenes. It's kind of like this conversation, you know, because then it's my chance to say, look at, you have to understand something when trying to catch that animal and that, like everything has to be perfect. So back to our subject at hand is, you know, snowshoe hair, snaring snowshoe hair. One of the easiest things you can do In the wintertime with the right gear in the right place at the right time. If all of those things fall in place, yes, you can get 20 rabbits, but you have to have all of those things fall in line. I love talking about that stuff.
0: So, before I let you go, I want to talk about gear. And, you know, I've done a fair bit of backcountry. And I know a lot of people listening to this do more backcountry than I do. And it's occurred to me that if if I was going to, you know, have in my gear as I'm going to go off, and, you know, things happen, people get lost. My thought is you'd want a kind of a spool of braided line or maybe mono. I don't know. You can tell me which one is probably better. A couple of two, three hooks. I would have a couple of, you know, lead sinkers basically because why not? And you can throw a lot easier when you got some lead on the end of it than when you don't. And then I don't know. I don't know what else like you would necessarily want to have if you were going to try and do. Well, I guess this is really talking about survival or survival fishing because you kind of have to for a few days until or until you get picked up rather than I want to fish the way the Sari Indians do in Sonora or something like that. Cause that's an entirely different ball of wax.
1: Exactly. Two completely different scenarios. So where you were kind of leading with the initial question is what should I have in my kit? Yes. And first of all, let's premise it with the question. Well, where are you?
0: <laughs> because North America. So right. you're, you're, you're from. You're oh, in, no, 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 no.
1: We're gonna be more specific than that because the kind of fishing gear that I'm going to have beside rivers flowing through Utah is going to be different from the kind of fishing gear I'm going to have in the Arctic or in Northern Ontario. So first of all, what kind of fishing is actually, if I'm in Oregon where I am now, and I'm for some reason stranded near the Rogue River, although I could probably find people soon enough, but let's just say, well, then, you know, might be fly fishing gear. So first of all, know where you're going to be on your adventure. Here's where I can summarize this. You customize everything in your kit to where you're going to be, what you're going to be doing, and what the realities are if you were to be stuck. And that's where you start. So now, okay, I'm going to be somewhere near this river in Oregon. It's a remote area. I know that Steelhead run this river, but I'm going to be so remote that it's away from the roads and away from everybody. And I'm already a good fly. I'm going to do fly fishing. So I'm going to have flies. I'm going to have fly fishing gear. And you say, well, yeah, but how do you fit all that in your kit? You make it small. You make it fit. I mean, when you have items in your kit that work perfectly for where you are, it's a beautiful thing. So for example, if you said in bug season, and I can tell by your reaction, a lot of times you don't like bugs, Hank, in bug season in Northern Ontario, do I want, a beautiful knife on my belt or a bug jacket. (laughs) I'll take the bug jacket hands down. I don't care what kind of knife you want to offer me. I don't care if that knife can speak to me. I want a bug jacket. So same with the fishing gear. Where are we? It might be actually a net. A net may be better than any fishing gear in a survival kit. It folds up nice and small. You can splay it out. So if you're in a place where, yeah, there's a lot of creeks, the creeks are fairly deep, the fish run it. I have access. It's warm. What's the temperature? Well, it's warm. I can get naked. I can get in the water and set up my net, come back out, dry off. I'm good. You know, a lot of times I've been by rivers where even with the gear, how do I access the river? The bush is too thick. There's thorns everywhere. The the edges are too steep. Yeah, cliff. Exactly. In Utah, they call it getting uh, ledged up. You can see the water, but you can't get to it. So that's the thing is I would want your viewers, anybody listening, uh, your your listeners, I should say, to understand, well, I'm not just going to take my collapsible fishing rod with my MEPS spinner and good line and show up at a survival situation and know it's going to work. It's like, that ain't going to work in a rugged creek in the Amazon jungle, but a fishnet would work perfect right so that's the big thing for me with kits. i love talking about survival kits because people too often want the thing mm-hmm. and for example they always want you gotta have a good knife there are so many things i would rather have than a knife in a survival situation
0: like an epurb would be number one i think
1: well, <laughs> well okay you just touched on something are you there to stay or do you want to go home and in a survival situation i don't care what you say all you really want to do is go home. So I don't care what kind of fishing gear you want. You just want to get out of there.
0: (laughs) Well, is there anything else we haven't touched on on the kind of like non-traditional old school fishing?
1: Well, I think if you want to look at the work that I've done, just some things that you can watch that I've done. It was the Grenada Island where I did the plastic bottle in the line. It was the Georgia Swamp where I did a line using bubblegum as a bobber. Now, that might have worked, but the line was too... I think oftentimes the lines are too thick and too short. So, you know, you want to be able to get, you know, your line out there. I think it was in Beyond Survival, that series, it was with the Sri Lankan Veda where I did poison fishing and in, then in the Peru and the Wachapati and the jungle where I did poison fishing and we're building again. Those, I think, are very fascinating things to watch. But there is a lot more to fishing out there first you just have to research what was done primitively in your area then research what modern gear you might take into in your area and then blend the two and have some fun but you also want to know don't forget too though hank and i know you know this for people who want to go out and try different things you do have to also understand the legalities of things for example like i said i can't just arbitrarily leave a line out off of my dock in Northern Ontario anymore overnight because it's illegal. So you want to be careful about that. You can't, you know, spearing and bow and arrowing fish is often illegal everywhere. You, you do your research, you find out, oh, they only allow
0: this. So right. you have to be careful. And know Short, short version, anything's fair game with carp.
1: There you go. That's right. And that's a beautiful thing. As I touched on earlier, practice. Go out and practice on a fish that, that the ministry, I don't know what you call it here. We call it ministry up Department. in Canada. The departments, they don't care. <laughs> it, hey, you want to kill carp? You can use dynamite. We don't care.
0: Just the DuPont spinner.
1: The DuPont spinner. <laughs> practice, practice it. All. So, but again, know what's legal and what's not, and then go out and practice. That's a cool thing about primitive skills and survival skills is when you can legally practice some of these things. I had to get a lot of permits to do Survivor Man and get a lot of approvals on a lot of things to be able to do just to, you know, get a, take a squirrel. You know, that can oh, be wow. highly illegal depending on where you are. Or get, I had to get special permission, right? So stuff like that.
0: God, those little chicory squirrels up in the North country, are just they just yell at you.
1: Oh, you're talking about red squirrels? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, not my favorite. You know, it's great. It's, <laughs> not to go down this road too far, but listening to the squirrels and the birds alerts you to what else is going on. Oh, around, yeah. You know, those guys, when those guys are chattering, but they're 300 yards away from you. Well, that's not because of you. Something else is moving around down there.
0: It's mm-hmm. pretty cool. It's to- funny. I was talking to a, on a previous episode to my friend, Kirk Lombard, who is sort of the king of the intertidal zone here in the West Coast. And uh, he was talking about the one time and the only the one time that he went abalone diving. And he's down there and he's having a hard time of it. And you know, he's getting wrapped up in kelp and almost dying. And he's like, oh, God, this is terrible. I just got to go back." He goes, he goes down there one more time. He's like, where are all the sea lions? They, they just all disappeared. Where did they go? So he's like, this isn't good. So he gets back up on the boat and then they decide that they're done abalone fishing because they too felt that "Eh, something's not right. So they go fishing for lingcod just down the, you know, like 50 yards away. They go to another spot and fish for lingcod and a 14 foot white shark eats one of the lingcod. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yikes. I, I had a very similar situation happen when I was filming for Shark Week. We were filming in Australia. There were these beautiful seals, Australian fur seals or something like that. They were like, the golden retrievers of the water. They were so beautiful and so (laughs) friendly. And all the females are dancing around me and the bulls are over there. I had to watch for them, but the females are all around. I mean, coming right up to my mask and I'm in the shallow area and I'm, oh, this is so cool. I go out in the sandy beach and then they're all around me. They were drifting, going a little bit here, a little bit there. And then they just disappeared. And I noticed they had led me out above the deep water where we had several 18 and 16 foot great white sharks that were hunting and the seals had taken me there and then abandoned me there. And it was like, you buggers. It was like, they planned it. It was sirens. Oh my God. I'm like, ah, and I'm like frantically swimming away from this spot where earlier in the day, I'd been in a cage filming great whites and the great whites hunt these seals. And I'm just like, oh, and it was, I tell you to this day, I think they planned it. It's smart creature.
0: It's not impossible. I mean, it's no, it's not sirens, mermaids. (laughs) Well, Hank,
1: thank you so much for this, man. Anytime again, any subject, anytime, I would love to chat with you. And uh, again, I want to encourage you know, for your listeners, that the right way to do it is not to watch my shows or read my books or read your books or go online only. It's to do all those things and then contact individuals like you and do the private training. Get out there and, uh, and learn from somebody firsthand who can say, yes, that is a chitin. And it is delectable and you can eat that and it's safe. But if someone's not doing that, you're guessing
0: and you just don't, you don't ever want to guess when it comes to wild edibles of any sort, you know? that's true. So where can uh, people most easily find you on the internet or on TV or wherever?
1: Well, I'm super active these days online, but first and foremost, my new series, Les Stroud's Wild Harvest with our mutual friend, Kevin Cosman is on a PBS station near you. So it's presented by American public television. It's on like virtually every PBS station in the United States airs it. It's amazing. It's just an incredible coverage. So you just check your local listings and Hank, it's right up your alley. It's that kind of stuff. It's gathering what, local wild edibles. And then we give it to a five-star chef who shows you what you can really do with it in a kitchen. So it's not rough stuff. It's really beautiful. Number two is I'm putting everything I have is online now on my YouTube channel, Survivor Man Stroud. Just go on YouTube. And that includes weekly uploads of these director's commentaries and new work that I do. So that's there. And lastly, I'll say, I just, when are you airing this? Probably a couple, two, three weeks. Perfect, okay. So by then, it will have been announced that my new children's book is called Wild Outside. And it's written to your kids, seven to 14 years of age. For how to be out in adventure in the wilderness. It was released last year. It just won a Children's Choice Award, the Yellow Cedar Award, which is a Canadian Children's Choice Award for Best Nonfiction Book. Awesome. I'm really thrilled about that. So that's out there right now. But online is always easy to find me. You know, just Google, and I'm an easy Google. So, and I'm still active. And I, Hank, I hope to get down and meet you in person. And I hope to work with you on a new wild harvest show sometime in your area. So you can show me what's going on with the tidal pools and what's in season when I get there.
0: Make it so number one. Absolutely. Thanks a lot, Les. Thank you, Hank. That is our show for this week. I am your host, Hank Shaw, and we are sponsored by eFish and Filson. I really appreciate you spending part of your day with us, and I hope to see you on that series of tubes we call the internet. You can find me on Instagram, at HuntGatherCook. You can also find me on my website, which is HunterAnglerGardenerCook. You can find that most easily by going to HuntGatherCook.com. And don't forget, if you are interested in buying a copy of one of my books, you can go to my website, which, as I just said, is huntsgathercook.com, and use the coupon code HUNTGATHERTALK, all one word. If you use that coupon code in the checkout form, you get 20% off the cost of the books. Hope to see you out there. Have a good spring. Hope you enjoy the episode. And as usual, I'll be out there chasing God's creatures. Take it easy and talk to you soon.